hear, feel, think, and listen to A Grand Line Reborn, a new podcast miniseries by Third Impact Anime. This is episode two, which we are titling uh, Castrum Arlong for good reason, as this is the end of our first uh, section, our first saga. I just finished East Blue on my end, and Bill just finished 2.0. Yeah, I am now in post 2.0 content as of this recording, making very good progress. Oh, yes, we are definitely both making very fast progress. <laughs> I don't think either of us expected to be blazing through these series as fast as we have, considering, well, we've been doing this maybe a month, and I'm already 100-plus chapters in. You're already, you know, in the, completing the first game. God, do you know offhand how many hours you've spent? I need to check, but I wish they would, uh, but I don't think they do like Steam. But I can tell you the relative amount of time it's taken me to complete it is, I think, from the start, it's been about two weeks. Yeah, around around two weeks of active playtime. Which was uh, a lot shorter than mine was. Uh, we don't really talk about, uh, we don't, we don't, we don't playtime uh, shame here, you know, everybody goes at their own pace, and you know, if if we log in and spend a couple hours just playing with our glams or going to clubs to hang out, you know that doesn't count. So it it, it shouldn't count after <laughs> playtime, which is the story that I'm going with. Uh, because yeah, let's not talk about Steam Steam playtimes here. Uh, no one wants to go down that path. <laughs> uh, okay, well uh, before we begin in earnest here, let's uh, just kind of talk about what uh, been going on with the podcast. So at the time of this recording. Episode Zero just released a few days ago, so uh, our our little project is out in the open, out in the wild, and um, I'm really happy with the reception so far. Of course, it's mainly people that have already been following our little project to begin with, but it seems like everyone is pretty excited and hyped to hear about our progress. Yeah, I think it's an exciting uh, journey that we're we are uh, setting ourselves upon and amongst our friends they seem excited and i will be even more excited when we get more responses in the great beyond and on our in our email address so yeah yeah it's been really cool to uh this little goofy thing that we started as a joke about a month ago sort of take off and get a life of its own so i'm really excited to to uh continue to see that and you know we have episode one should be coming out within a few more days our proper episode one and of course, episode two here, we're probably going to give it about a month or so. I mean, that's not going to matter to you guys listening because you're hearing it as it comes out. But uh, I think we're going to stagger these releases a little bit further as we go on just to give ourselves some time and space to, you know, to really absorb this material as well. Okay, and right off the bat here, we actually have received our first email from a listener of our little show. Uh, I did not expect uh, any email <laughs> at all, to be honest, but to get one after episode one, uh, I'm pretty happy. Pretty happy about that. It is very exciting. Mm-hmm. All right, well, this is from a listener who goes by Flu, just F-L-U. Let's go ahead and see what it has to say. Hey, y'all. Something that I think One Piece and FF14 do very well 
is developed minor tertiary characters in the background. While I would not dare listen to the answers for fear of spoilers, I would recommend two things that can be done at any time in either series. For One Piece, occasionally in the manga, uh, the chapters are preceded with a series cover page that shows a minor subplot going on. These are canon and actually very fun. And then in FF14, uh, Flu suggests poking around wherever the waking stands and talking to everyone when the game forces you to go back. The NPCs change positions and their dialogue updates. This is also true of future home bases as well. Uh, they give new ones in future expansions because you're traveling to distant places. NPCs that accompany you on quests, but aren't necessarily the quest objective NPCs, also have interesting dialogue changes. Glad you were both enjoying One Piece and FF14. Sincerely, Flu. Thank you for writing in, Flu. So, to start out to answer these questions here, uh, yeah, so for One Piece, I think I, I might have briefly mentioned it, uh, possibly on this episode that, that you're listening to right now, but uh, yeah, that's definitely something I've noticed. Uh, it's really, it's been interesting because through the first arc, we primarily just see just art. It's usually the characters sitting in a fun scene, or uh, they're wearing like fancy clothes. It's something that you can tell that Oda just wants to draw something fun. But I noticed that First we see, what is it? First we see Buggy and the mm-hmm. aftermath of Buggy and Buggy's crew, uh, him trying to find his crew. And he sort of backtracks and goes to places like uh, with the land of the land of animals, the island of animals. And he gets in a lot of adventures until uh, he finally finds his crew, reunited with them. And it sort of leads up into the Rogue Town arc where he actually shows up again. Huh. And then shortly after that, um, after it wraps up those... The, the, the buggy cover art, I guess you could say. Uh, we see <laughs> Helmuppo, uh, Helmuppo and Kobe as they go on a little adventure of their own, sort of sort of retracing the steps of our pirate crew and meeting these other characters. Uh, right after that, I think I just finished the series with Jenko and a dance festival. <laughs> uh, I think I think isn't that like animated in the anime? Him going to a dance festival, no. Like, none of the kind of incidental uh, kind of pages showing where other characters are have, have been adapted into the anime, from what I can recall from my memory. So I remember one one thing. I think it was in one of the, maybe in one AMV I watched forever ago. I didn't know it at the time, but now I recognize these characters. I definitely saw Django dancing, and I don't know if it's maybe a special or a short, like a one-off thing. I'll have to look that up. Uh, Flu, or if uh, any other leader or Flu, you know what I'm talking about, just kind of offhand. But please, please write in and let us know, because um, you know, I, I, I'm pretty sure that these are all leading up into them getting reintroduced at some point. I'm pretty sure it, the manga is telling us that Helmuppo is going to show back up with Kobe. Mm-hmm. And they're going to be heroes now, <laughs> not cowards. Uh, we know Buggy's come back, so we know Buggy is a thing for sure. And uh, I noticed in our, our recording earlier that you noticed that Captain Kuro, you say he doesn't come back, which uh, I'm pretty appreciative of. But you didn't say that Django didn't come back. You very conspicuously did mention that, Bell. So I'm going to uh, assume that you're subtly hinting that we see more Django. Maybe, maybe not. You'll have to read to find out. <laughs> I guess we will. 
I, I, before we get to the 14 part, one thing I love about that, one thing I'm jealous about someone that doesn't really read the manga but watches the anime is that he kind of giving hints of things are going on outside of what we see as the reader. That the world mm. is ongoing and that people are doing things. The world is not static. It's not a, um, it's, it's not a, it's not a play where it's only involving the characters that are on the stage. People outside of it are doing their own things. And I think that's great. It's a great little piece of world building where it doesn't take a lot of, uh, effort, but it shows that, yes, there are things going on beyond our viewpoint as the reader. Exactly. And these, uh, these stories aren't that complicated. I mentioned the Django dance off thing and it's every little chapter we get an update. It's him getting into and out of trouble by dancing. It's a, it wouldn't be meaty enough for a chapter in and of itself, maybe, but it's fun to see them just as single splash pages Mm. chapters. Well, on the other hand, what, what have you noticed about, uh, FF 14? Have you tried talking to anybody? Uh, that's not a quest giver. I have. After we read this email, I started to be more aware of just like the members of the Seventh Dawn and started to talk, talk to them about events going on. And he was right in that they do have commentary and kind of give their own thoughts about ongoing events. And also, you get a little bit of incidents of uh, their own character, like. One thing that made me laugh, I'm going to probably say his name, uh, his name wrong, uh, Thancred. There you go, is, you did it. Wow, I, got, I can't believe I got a name right. <laughs> Where they are uh, at the new base and he's being surrounded. When you go up to talk to him, he's like dealing with a bunch of uh, ladies where he's like, ladies, ladies, come back later. <laughs> that, that made me laugh. Uh just kind of, he kind of reinforced the idea of kind of him as a character that you've told me about him, where he's like a himbo, like always yeah. looking for the ladies, um, and uh, also just other characters kind of giving their thoughts on the world, which I thought was very uh, great world building, and something I'm unfortunately I, I wasn't as engaged in because I I have to admit I had a bit of tunnel vision going to like okay gotta i'm so into the main story gotta go to the next quest person go to the next quest person go to the next quest person but i do like how in final fantasy 14 side characters stories progress like um now a name i'm i know i'm gonna not remember but the lalafeld guard that you meet in one of the earlier quests like he becomes a very important guard official later and later on in the story it's not like we just see him in this one quest and then we're done no he's a continuing character making his own progressions and stuff going on in his own life which i think is really cool and just again shows that the world is more than just what we immediately see exactly um i noticed also this it may be a little easier to see as you progress in uh, in heaven's word and onward into stormblood but as you go out into the world and you start traveling with some of your companions rather than just go do something and come back to home base. When you travel with your companions, there's usually one that actually advances the plot that you know, is the next MSQ, but the people around you will talk to you as well. So it's always a good idea 
to talk to everyone in your adventuring party before you continue because they all have opinions on what's going on but also opinions on each other <laughs> that they'll give you and also little bits of character development all right well thanks so much for writing in flu uh, I, I i hope you're at least a little proud that you're our first <laughs> you popped our email cherry <laughs> you can say that <laughs> uh but certainly anyone else don't don't let don't let flu stand alone here and be the only uh participant yeah i would love to hear our viewers thoughts on their experiences going through 14 or their experiences reading or watching one piece maybe we could have a correspondence with someone talking with such nostalgia about the one piece music <laughs> or a great panel in the manga that'd be cool i also want to point out you know as you hear this on every single podcast you listen to but i do want to reiterate here this is pretty important for our little show again it would be great if you guys out in audience land would share this podcast to your followers on social media and, you know, whoever, um, I know that not everyone is on Twitter the same way we are, you know, there's other sites and you know other places that are not online, but we would really, really like, really appreciate if you guys would share this to uh, other people who either play Final Fantasy 14 or are big one piece nerds. It would be a huge help if uh, our audience would help spread that word and again i know you hear that on every single podcast but i do want to reiterate for a small show like this really is helpful to do that so again thank you to those of you who have shared it and retweeted on twitter so far and for those of you who haven't please go do that we would we would love it All right. Well, let's then go ahead and get into our uh, updates. So what we want to do, first of all, is talk about the remainder of these this first saga that we didn't talk about on episode one. And then after, we will talk about these sagas as a whole. So I'll go ahead and start because I know that Bale is uh, the most anxious to hear me talk about our long park, the end cap to the East Blue saga. Our long park is basically the final arc of the East Blue Saga. And for most fans, Arlong Park is where you really decide whether you want to continue the series, if you're really into it, or if you think, I think that this is it for me, I should get off the train. So, Tobias, what did you think of Arlong Park? I think that your assessment, what you just said, was exactly it. Um, I I loved it. It was great. Uh, Arlong Park was, to me... The point where One Piece goes from being a competent shonen series to being a great shonen series. Uh, I don't think there's really any other way you could get around that. Like the other arcs up to that point were either kind of, you know, there, they were present, they followed the formula that Oda had set forward. Uh, pretty, pretty formulaic for the most part, if we're being honest. But Arlong Park was great. Uh, this is where One Piece proves it is, <laughs> proves its worth. Uh, I'll say that. And, you know, usually when I tell people to watch, you know, any series, anything, I talk about the three episode test. You know, if you watch three episodes, if you like it, that's sort of the point. Unfortunately, Arlong Park is far away from the third episode, but <laughs> it is the point where I feel like, like you said, like that is, proves the metal of this, this, this series. And you really need to like watch that or read that before you walk away from it completely because, man, very very great story uh you know this is this the name arlong park is a word uh, a phrase that i've heard it's just the beginning this this is very early in one piece of course this was a 
name that I've heard for many, many years, just as an arc, you know, in, in the series. But it, it proves its worth for sure. Yeah, I, I think what makes Arlong Park so great is it's the finale for the long it kind of has shown that Oda is playing the long game because mm. when Nami first shows up she's kind of just a side character and she's a thief and so you don't really know her backstory at all but she keeps popping up and popping up in the early uh, chapters and stories and this is where her story and her origins and why she is the way she is comes to a head exactly exactly I feel like Arlong Park, when you drive down to it, is just as formulaic as the other arcs. However, there's that strong emotional core that really pushes it, uh, pushes it forward, and really kept me uh, enraptured and uh, and turning those pages. Uh, I can't imagine trying to read this, you know, when it was chapter every chapter every week, just because it was just so much going on. And I think I blazed through the bulk of it in, in one big session. You know, one one Sunday I just sat down and read the the, the vast bulk of our long park because of how kind of amazing that was. Let's let's set up what our long park actually is, just to kind of give our listeners an idea of what happened. So. Mm-hmm. Basically, as if, if and Tobias, correct me if I'm wrong. So, Nami stole uh, something. I think it was money or something of value to Luffy and the crew. And they, oh, she stole the ship. Oh uh, yeah, she's, the Mary she's, Go. Yeah, she stole the Mary, the the going Mary, and so they have to go and follow her to get back to it, which they leads them to Arlong Park, which is her hometown. And when they get there. They learn that a bunch of uh, a race called the Fishmen, which are basically like fish-like creatures of a uh, different variety, uh, have basically controlled uh, con- have a controlled uh, a monopoly, or kind of like they're basically the overlords or the gangsters that control the island, and that Nami right. works for them. And the reason why Nami works for them is her is she is a map maker that Arlong has been using for his own ends. Arlong is the leader of the fishmen uh, uh, that control the, uh, control the island. Um, and basically the reason why she's working for them is she was told as a young girl, hey, if you work for me long enough and earn this certain amount of uh, golden berry, which is the currency in One Piece, I will leave the island, and f- your people, your people, your friends, your family will be free. Uh, which we, of course, is a lie by Arlong to manipulate her, and also just the outright uh, horrible actions that Arlong does to her family and to th- her neighbors. And like you said, just the just the emotional core is what drives One Piece. I think that's the real reason why people keep going is because as you go on, uh, Tobias, the emotional core is the driving heart of the story and why people care. And these backstories basically give you the reasoning of why things are the way they are 
why characters act the way they do and gives us that anchor for us to care. I really like that nautical pun there. Good, good job, though. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I, I completely agree. Up until this point, um, you do talk about, I mean, there's so much there. There's, um, you know, the fishmen, they aren't just fish people. They are, as presented in the story, to be physically superior uh, over humankind. They are just stronger. They can swim and breathe underwater. They are, time and time again, presented as this force that the villagers, the human villagers of uh, you know of Nami's little village just cannot overcome. Like if they've tried several times, and Nami and her family have tried several times to sort of usurp them or rise above and free the village, but it just never works. They are just so much more powerful. And the other arcs so far are kind of the same way in that there is a strong, usually a pirate, a strong force that is coming in and taking over and taking away the freedoms of the people in that island. So in that way, Arlong Park is similar um, plot-wise to the other arcs. However, because we see Nami, the main character, her, her story, her backstory here, because we see how powerless she is up until that point, because we see her manipulated by Arlong, we connect with it on a deeper level. Uh, I think the arc before, the Bharati arc with Sanji, was also pretty good because we see Sanji and his history with uh, Chef Seth, and I think that was a strong arc for him as well. But the Nami arc, the Arlong Park arc, just takes that one step further. And because it is so much longer, because we see uh, what Nami goes through, because we see both her betrayal, it seems to be just a complete betrayal by, by her with the, the pirate crew, the Straw Hats, but then we see that turn around. It just works so well. And and Odin knows exactly what he's doing and pulling every single heartstring masterfully throughout this arc to keep us hooked. And the emotional weight behind what Nami goes through. It's a uh I don't mean to use this word lightly, but I would I would argue that what Nami goes through is is a traumatic experience of uh seeing her adopted mother someone that basically raised her and cared for her uh, be killed in front of her as a young child. Uh, mm -hmm. Which is, which is, I would ima imagine is very traumatizing. And then going to work for the people that did this horrible crime and feeling that working with them, the, your, your neighbors, your other family hates you. And that they won't talk to you, even if that's not really the case. But just that emotional weight behind those incidents, you feel it, you connect to it. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's. I would not say that using the word trauma and traumatic experience is reaching at all. That's, that's completely what it is. Uh, at first, we don't really realize why she's doing this. It does feel like she is betraying them. But then once you start getting more information from the village and there's a whole chapter or two where they just completely go like through the, um, oh, what do you call it? Like the flashback, the flashback, mm -hmm. of course, um, to like her history. And you see Belmare, you see Nojiko, uh, their life growing up and sort of how they were growing up poor and having just to eat tangerines for every meal because of how uh, poor they were. And seeing Belmare, this, this, this person that was a badass in a past life, but gave it up. 
to raise a, these kids. It's a former Marine, which is the basically the military force of the One Piece world. Mm-hmm. And we see her give all that up to raise these kids and, you know, sacrifice so much for these kids only to see again, like she, she fought the whole village fought. They could not do anything over Arlong. There was Arlong and his fishmen were a solid wall that they could not pass through. Like they, they they just, they had to give in to his demands. It wasn't a matter of cowardice or what have you. It was either that or they would die. And that's really like the resounding theme of our long park is I want to live. And we see so much in these other shonen esque series, these other uh, series that are romanticized and sort of just fighting back and, and whatnot. And you just have to give your life to the cause or whatnot. But our long park is different. And that the overarching theme is I want to live and you have to live another day to, to, to see it through, to see, your, your journey through or to rise above. You can't do that if you self-sacrifice at the very first step. And I think that's, you know, just hearing that time and time again, talking about Nami saying she wants to live, it felt so different than other series where the, the awesome hero is going to, you know, sacrifice himself for, mm-hmm. for the cause. One thing that I feel One Piece does really well, and this, we're going to be saying this phrase a lot as the series goes on, is just the emotional core behind the characters and the reasonings for why they are, is that not as strong from what I've seen in uh, My Hero Academia, Bleach, and other sort of shonen series where there can be emotional elements to it, but it's not the central core of the story. And I'm I'm not trying to denigrate this other series. Each series has their own strengths. But for One Piece, I think that emotional core is what, for me, rises it, rises it above the rest. For sure. I would say each of these series has what they do well in their own way. But uh, for sure, One Piece went, in the earlier arcs, went just feeling kind of like a, a very generic show about fighting and defeating the bad guys and moving on to the next island. But this hit harder. You're like, yeah, because you will, you will get... I would be very surprised if people who read One Piece don't get emotional reading it. Mm-hmm. Like an, a prime example that probably the key key scene in Arlong Park is when after uh, Arlong basically tells Nami like what I said was a lie. You're, I'm raising the price up, and then the the villagers of of Arlong Park, the the humans. Basically, say we knew what you were sacrificing to try and get us free, and we're not going to uh, uh, we're not going to put up with this anymore. We're gonna we're, we we know we're probably gonna lose. But we're gonna die trying because we're we're sick of it. And just her trying to keep up that front of like, no, guys, I I can do it. Just I'll keep mm-hmm. trying. And that eventual release of just her emotions and just the the wall coming down of her stabbing the Arlong Park tattoo that she had to brand herself and her crying in the road, on the dirt road, just like, I I can't, I can't do it anymore. Yeah. I'd be very surprised if someone doesn't get emotional over that. 
Oh, absolutely, completely. Uh, in in that part, we see her try to shoulder the burden of all that, and she does it pretty well. She she's able to get over her initial trauma, or at least she's able to tamp it down and bottle it up because she has that goal in mind. Arlong has told her, "You can buy the freedom of the village with this amount of money. Work for me and do it." And he supposedly is a man of his word. We do see him talk about that before. Uh, it does appear that he's going to give her what he promised. And she's able to use that as a glimmer of hope to continue to do what she does. And she seems very you know, hyper-competent. She seems really strong and, and self-sufficient because she has that goal in mind. And then when that goal was taken away from her, she breaks down because everything she's worked for has been for nothing. Absolutely nothing. You know, the, the village she was trying to protect has gone on is probably going to throw themselves away as one last ditch effort. The goal she was working for is not only a lie, but it was taken away from her completely stolen from her by the Marines, you know, the, the cops as it were, the people who were supposed to be protecting the people mm-hmm. on the East blue. And yeah, she just, at, at that point, she realizes that she can't do this alone and seeing all that taken away from her and realizing that she cannot do anything about it. It causes her to lose it. And in mm-hmm. that iconic scene where she just starts, she starts stabbing herself in the, in the tattoo, the brand that uh, you mentioned, she's, she's so sick of it. She's, she wants it gone. She's just completely lost it. And then Luffy shows up and he's there to sort of, I, heard, I really hesitate to say he's there to protect her, but we see Luffy do the thing that he's known for in this series, and he is just a force for freedom in a, in a way that in some ways can make him seem a little too unrealistic because he is just a goofy character, very much like Goku. He's just a big goofball that is there to save the day. But Luffy's his entire theme is all about giving freedom to the people and no matter what that is and it may not be what's best for that person but if it's what they want to do in that moment luffy's gonna fight for your ability to do that mm-hmm. and that's exactly what we see here we see you know he sees his friend who did betray him but he recognizes why she did that that she was trying to free herself and her family from this dictator and he will not have it. Hey, at that point, he just completely, nope, I'm going to defeat Arlong at this point. And that is, that, that's also Luffy's, you know, his entire uh, modus operandi so far has just been to give everyone freedom around him. And then they go on the, the, the other, the, the walk to the Arlong Park uh, base of operations with Luffy, Zoro, Sanji, mm-hmm. And Usopp, which is like a big scene in the anime with music playing in the background, uh, them <laughs> walking kind of western, like a, something out of a, a western, uh, to face the dastardly villain. And just, uh, I'll say one thing that's great is the fights. When the when the fights happen, it's very cathartic because after seeing all that with Nami, and the emotional trauma that she's been through and just the suffering the villagers have suffered through. When you see Arlong get punched through, you just want to go, yeah, go, exactly, get him. So when you just see him 
beat to a pulp and his uh his minions beat to a pulp you're just you're you're cheering like like someone would be would be cheering at a sporting event i was <laughs> say that <laughs> <laughs> get there and you know they sort of space it out by having luffy is stuck in the the concrete block he sort of plants his feet into the rock which was great at first but it traps him for a bit and they toss him in the water which of course because he's the devil fruit user he can't swim uh he's probably gonna drown so we see nojiko and the uh, i don't know if it's the mayor or just the chief of the village i can't remember his name offhand the the guy with the pinwheel yeah, the the pinwheel guy. Like they're desperately trying to like save Luffy, to the point where they they take his head. You know, he's he's under the water, buried in rock, and they take his head and stretch his neck out because he's you know the gum gum fruit, uh, and stretch his neck above the water so he can breathe the air. It's just kind of funny to see how they've done that, and uh, you know we see his powers used uh, for for basically anime attacks so far gum gum bazooka gum gum uh, spear that kind of thing but to see it really used in a different way i thought was kind of funny uh, in that way yeah i like how when he gets to main villains he can't just do the gumma gumma go all the time like he has to be somewhat creative at points when dealing mm-hmm. with uh the main bad guy like when it comes to like minions he can do his anim his like typical anime attacks but he has to be more mm-hmm. creative when it comes to the uh to the boss fights yeah because they all have most of them have double fruit powers as well or something the equivalent of double fruit powers so you have these um, unstoppable force meets an immovable wall you know you <laughs> kind of have to figure out uh you know oda himself has to figure out how do i make this interesting how do i have these two big forces meet in a very interesting way because uh, i said this before uh in the the i think even episode zero episode one um the the fights in one piece in the manga they're, they're there like they're not usually they're not as exciting because we can't see the fight choreography happen so he has to use these big sort of key animation moments to, to see how they interact and uh in arlong park the big thing is arlong he's a shark person so he starts to bite Luffy with his sharp teeth. The teeth come out because he has infinite teeth, uh, as it were. And he even like pulls out sets of teeth and uses them as like brass knuckles, or I guess shark tooth knuckles. I guess you would say. Uh, even look like uh, Luffy does that too. He takes some of these extra sets of teeth and uses them as uh, chompers on his on hands, which is pretty funny. <laughs> So we have to see, um, you know, Oda has to get creative with some of these fights. And we've seen that throughout each one, you know, with um, with, with Buggy, 
he was able to sort of split around and take his uh, his hands and, and feet and use them like rocket punches or rocket kicks in more traditional anime format. And we've seen how Luffy has to use that and think around that as well. So it's a I feel like it's a common common refrain in these these boss fights in One Piece. Yeah, uh, thank you, Araki from JoJo, because you probably <laughs> inspired a lot of that. So. Yeah, uh, I, you know, I wouldn't. I would not doubt if uh, we find out that Oda is a big fan of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. One other plot point I wanted to briefly mention with Arlong Park is, I like that it reinforces, or it brings up again, that the Marines, which are basically the police of the One Piece world or the um, or the military, it's not all good because. What one thing that people bring that uh, gets brought up is, well, why can't the villagers get the Marines to deal with Arlong? Well, it's because Arlong has paid or bribed um, a corrupted kind of mousy official. I love that he basically yeah. looks like a rat. <laughs> yeah, he, he is a not only just mousy like you know description. He's he's literally a rat. <laughs> he's, literally, he's literally a rat. Where he basically pays him off to be like. So that way, no marine forces would come to the island at all. Um, so that way, he can do what he wants. And we've seen this before with uh, Captain Morgan during Zora's introduction, where he's also a corrupted uh, marine official that kind of does what he wants with his bratty son. Um, and I and I like the dichotomy of well, the pirates are not. The only force in the is not the only um, not so friendly force, but it's also could be the the military force that that is supposed to protect the people. When that it reiterates that point that you said, Tobias, of just it's the people just trying to survive in the world and dealing with the external forces that are brought upon them, whether that be the military uh, with their corrupted with that are corrupted or to have their own goals or. Uh, pirates that are just looking for land grab and holding on to their own power absolutely the the common refrain in one piece so far has been the common folk are going to be tamped down by people in power and whether that is somebody like buggy that is just a um, cutthroat pirate maybe there's somebody like arlong that is considers himself to be of a superior race and can do that because he has no respect for this in the inferior humankind. Maybe that's somebody like Captain Morgan or the, the rat one here. I think it's a Nezumi or something like that. Uh, these people that have systemic power that can utilize that as well. And that's, again, no matter which, no matter who the villain is, it all comes down to they are holding the common people down, keeping them from freedom, and Luffy will show up to, to save them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I see that uh, when it comes down to it, even though Luffy and Co., uh, the Straw Hats, win, they don't really because they have a bounty on their head. This is where it becomes official that they are actual pirates now. I think uh, they ended with like a, what, 30,000 berry bounty? Something like that. Uh, just because they fought against the corrupt, uh, the corrupt uh, Marine, and now it's official. They are criminals for real this time. Which is and so funny. I can't help I can't help, I can't help but think of a comparison now to Captain Harlock. This uh this you know this classic series about and again, 
this 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 character that is very much about freedom and freeing humanity, freeing the common people from these tyrannical aliens, but a person that is branded as a criminal and branded as an outlaw, even by the people who he's there to protect, because he's you know so much of this system systemic power is wrapped up in keeping power to the people in power to to maintaining power the people who already have it and maintaining the status quo of you're disrupting the status quo we like the status quo keep with the status quo and the only reason the status quo gets to be like that the only reason that people like these marines and people like arlong the only reason they get to be rich and stay in power is at the expense uh, of other people and other people's freedom and of course they want to maintain that um (laughs) Again, I feel like this is only going to continue to be a thing in One Piece as we go. But that is the the this refrain to a large degree, and I I really can only see stuff like the corrupt Marines being a bigger thing as as time goes on in the series. Mm-hmm. Also, as a as a fan, I will say it's kind of funny to think of just like, oh wow, a thirty thousand Barry Bounty, <laughs> which which. <laughs> <laughs> which like now that's that's like peanuts <laughs> yeah uh, uh, they, so. they mentioned them um, in the in the final arc the the rogue town arc they sort of talk about other people and other uh pirates of bounties and i can tell it's only going to go up from here i think they mentioned the uh it's, you know it's a typical anime thing the seven kings or the seven something the uh, seven warlords were, the seven warlords there you go and they're obviously going to be like the villains in closer to the end game of the of the series or what have you did, but uh yeah i can tell it's gonna go they, up from there did they tell you what the warlords are about and like what's what what they are or was it just uh, uh, they they do the thing where they show the silhouettes and like we i can tell one of them is mihawk who we saw in the, the barity arc and some of the other ones you just kind of can see the shape i'm pretty sure uh, I guess since we're doing a, I'm just hype, hype, hype I'm just guessing. Uh, I'm, I think one of them is going to be Shanks, or Shanks is going to be involved. I, I just think because the silhouette looked kind of like Shanks' silhouette. I don't know, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just the warlords, and they're just like in every anime series. You know, Naruto has Akatsuki, for instance. You know, Dragon Ball had the Ginyu Force. You know, they're the villains that are. Um, foreshadowed as being a major force later in the series so uh, we'll have to see uh, what those come down to but uh, while while we're on that subject since uh, Rogue Town uh, Rogue Town with an R or Rogue Town with an L I think uh, the the manga called it Rogue Town with an L but I think it may be R in the anime we just I just call it Rogue Town yeah it's one of those situations, it's a little easier than the Mary Go going Mary situation because uh, it's really just the Japanese L and R is pretty much the same thing. But regardless, uh, Logue Town is the final arc in the East Blue, and it's only a couple chapters long. We see them get back to uh, like an actual civilization, an actual city with uh, bustling trade. And out of nowhere, uh, Buggy and Captain Evita from the very beginning of the series come back. And Buggy's there to just to get revenge on the Straw Hats. And Evita's come back, but now she's eating a devil fruit. Uh, which one did she eat? Nope, can't, can't, figure, can't remember to save my life. 
Yeah, so like the, the big change for Evita is that she goes from being very stereotypically ugly, an ugly character, to very stereotypically hot. She suddenly is hot, and they describe that because she's eating a gum gum fruit. I'm sorry, she's eating a devil fruit. And uh, which one is it? Sube Sube no, wait, slippery. So she's slippery. I'm just kind of checking this on the the One Piece wiki. <laughs> <laughs> Which has been a great resource, but because there's so much um, stuff to spoil, I've had to be a little careful yeah. when I, I'm just kind of skimming this. While you're skimming, I'll say I, one thing I love about Oda is that I most characters come back, or that when they're when they have their one encounter with Luffy, it's not like they're done. I can maybe name like two characters mm. that have had a confrontation then we we've never seen them again but every other character comes back at some point either in a minor role or back in a major role in some way and i like that because it makes the world feel more real of it's it's not a stage like they're doing their own thing off screen Mm -hmm. that we just don't know about and i think that's one great thing about uh oda with his uh, with his kind of world building and lore of just like we're focused on Luffy and what's happening around him, but there are other things going on in the background that we don't know about. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that completely. Um, I, I expected Buggy and Alvita to just be one-and-done villains, but they've come back. And I, I don't know how well the anime adapts this, but I mentioned before that the manga, the cover page of every chapter, has started to tell a little side story. So initially, it was after Buggy, the Buggy arc, we see Buggy trying to get his pirate crew back together and just uh, sort of make it in a post-Luffy post Luffy situation. And it's little cute little single panel story with uh, this character. And for a while, the, the, the Buggy mini arc was just him. You know, like the part where he's got his little head and his little hands and feet, but none of mm-hmm. his actual body, like a little chibi Buggy. Like it yeah. was kind of like chibi Buggy retracing the steps. And like chibi Buggy goes to like, the Island of Rare Animals with the guy that's trapped in a chest who is also pretty much just a head and hands and feet. <laughs> and uh, after all the, after Logetown and after we see Buggy, those little mini art uh, series start to cover Helmeppo and Kobe. So it's, it's, it's just a little funny way to see these characters that we thought were done actually continue to have a story. And I'm pretty sure Helmopa and uh, Kobe are going to come back later. Uh, no spoilers or anything. But it's kind of cool to see that happen. And uh, where I'm currently at, just a full few chapters into um, the the next uh, the Alabasta saga, like now we've got Django, another fun character from the Captain Kuro arc, is starting to get his little side chapter. So maybe we'll see Django show up later in the series mm-hmm. again, which I'm pretty pretty happy about. Again, I love that Oda doesn't throw anything away. Like, characters come back, they go on, they have their own life, they're doing their own thing. It makes the world feel more real and much bigger than if he just said, okay, well, we beat that villain, we're never going to see them again. We're on to the next one. I think sort of wrapping up that, I think the thing that really stood out to me, and to go back to the... The, the scene with Nami crying in the streets of the village. There are so many just single panel segments in the end of our long, which really stand out. And the, the, that sort of final scene 
where we see the grave marker and we see the, um, the little tangerine sitting there and then we see the little pinwheel as we see the going Mary, you know, in the background sailing off. That's just, it's an iconic, like if we were to do that one iconic scene in this podcast, that would be it for me. It's just, man, chef's kiss. Mm. Great. Amazing. Arlong Park solidified as great manga moment. Well, I guess to wrap things up, how did you feel about East Blue as a whole? Uh, I, I, I enjoyed it. I think our long park certainly sealed it as going from just kind of okay to great. I would say that a lot of my earlier misgivings uh, have been have, have turned around. I mentioned in my initial review that um, one reason I kind of put off One Piece for so long was because the characters were very goofy and it was very cartoony design. And it's funny because I think that has turned around to be a um, a positive in my eyes. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, in every arc we see a couple goofy characters that I think are hilarious. In the buggy arc, we had Mayor Boodle, the guy that looks like a poodle, <laughs> and the the dog uh, Chow Chow. I think it was uh, Chow Chow. The dog is kind of with Mary Boodle. I think it's just hilarious to have a, a poodle guy. Uh, on that note, we had Moji, the animal wrangler in, in Buggy's crew, that actually uh, we see his hair grow and his hair has ears. Like first of all, like um like bear, little bear ears, but as his hair grows and he shows up later, they're long bunny bunny ears. And there's something really stupid about that, which is kind of funny. Uh, I mentioned Django and the Captain Crow arc is kind of um, totally not Michael Jackson uh, ripoff doing the. Um, the hit, you know, hypnotism thing, and I think it was kind of funny how he would hypnotize himself in his acts, and to see how that worked out. So, the thing that put me off initially was these kind of silly characters has actually become one of my favorite parts. And now that I'm in, you know, the, the next part with uh, Baroque Works, another group of really silly characters, it's something I really look forward to with every <laughs> chapter. That's uh, awesome. I would say that. Yeah, I would say the one thing, I, I probably the low point, if I had to do one negative, I wasn't really a fan of the Sir Village Captain Kuro arc. Like, yeah, we see Usopp, and I really liked the whole boy who cried wolf situation where the village has sort of come to accept Usopp as being a liar, and it's almost an endearing trait from him. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it didn't really tie into the greater thing. I didn't really like... Like Captain Crew was okay at first, but I feel like it dragged a little bit. I didn't really particularly care for the the cat pirates, and I don't know something about it. Like I like Django, but that was really kind of about it. I wasn't a huge fan of uh, of Captain Crew's arc as a whole. Well, okay, uh, I know you said you didn't want spoilers, but I'm I'm gonna tell you this: you're never gonna see Captain Crew ever again, because <laughs> it seems like Oda also doesn't like Captain Crew. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd be fine with that. I just I just didn't find it interesting. Like even Captain Buggy. Like I'm gonna be honest with you. When I first I've seen Buggy before, just seeing One Piece hard, I didn't really particularly care about clown dudes. It's just not. I don't have like a clown fear or anything like that. I just mm-hmm. don't care. It just is not interesting to me. So I was not looking forward to Buggy. I just didn't think it would be interesting. But it was. I did think that Buggy's villainy was interesting. His um, devil fruit power was pretty fun as a villain and I'd like to see him come back. I, I, I surprisingly liked Buggy as a villain overall. 
But Captain Crow, I mean, the the whole pushing his glasses up with the palm of his hand, that was kind of fun to see them do that. You know, Usopp was okay. Like, so far, Usopp's not my favorite character, but I see what they're doing with him, and I think that could be interesting. But I just didn't particularly care for anything that was going on in Sir Village. So, you know, like, it's, it's... wasn't bad, but it wasn't great either. And I'm I'm really happy that Barati followed that. I really liked the or the restaurant pirates. I really liked seeing Mihawk show up, and even um oh who was the who was the big villain of that? Don Krieg, the King of the North Don, Blue. Don Krieg, right? Yeah, even he was like an interesting villain, and the way that panned out was interesting. Uh, so I'm I'm happy to forget, and I would say I'm happy that Uda has <laughs> forgotten about it, but eh, I, I don't blame him honestly. Uh, I, I think the last thing I want to sort of give over to this is now that I'm a one piece, you know, sicko like you, uh, I'm kind of looking forward to the Netflix live action series. Uh, as, I, I, as, uh, I, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, how are they going to do that? How are they going to do Buggy and like blowing up whole buildings? How are they going to do the Barati arc with the ship that becomes a, a fish and like Don Krieg is blowing stuff up. Like, how are they going to make that live action? I'm interested to see how they do it. And, you know, we talk about Cowboy Bebop. I, I really did not like the Cowboy Bebop live action. And that's not been a secret to anybody who's talked to me about it. Just because they, they tried to make it too goofy in ways that I feel like dropped they, the ball. I, it's a little side tangent. Okay. So I am, I'm scared out of my mind. For this Netflix live action show based off how Bebop went. Because with Bebop, it was like they found the recipe but then put in like too much ingredients or went too far in one way with certain characters. Like Jet in the live action show was always complaining and confrontational, which he's he can be like that in the anime sometimes, but he was usually pretty chill. Or with Faye being so quippy all the time. Ha- hashtag and... girl boss. <laughs> hashtag girl boss. And it just, it just like, that wasn't the character I was, that I watched in the show. And so I'm really scared how uh, it's going to go. Like, they're, they're saying all the right things, like, Oda is tentatively involved, like, but so was supposedly Shinichiro Watanabe in Bebop, and they, based on what I've seen behind-the-scenes stuff, like, they, they're building ship sets. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's not all just going to be blue screen and green screen. Yeah. Um, but I am also scared because they have to use CGI for the Devil oh, yeah. Fruit powers. There's no, there's no <laughs> way around it. And yeah. with how with how CGI works in the entertainment industry is CGI can be very good, but it has to be handled with delicate care. If it's not, then it's gonna no no offense, people, but it's gonna look like a Marvel movie where they're just trying to rush it out the door because we had a deadline. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really scared for the CGI effects and how they're going to present the characters. So. For sure, I don't. I don't think it's going to be good. I think I was mainly thinking about the ship sets that you mentioned because I've seen some of those pictures coming out so far, 
and they are not not making it try to be too realistic. The ships look just as silly as they do in the manga. Like the Going Merry looks kind of goofy, like a cartoon pirate ship. And something about that I think would work pretty well if they go all in on it. So, you know, it's probably not going to be great, but I'm still with bated breath looking forward to the Netflix show now that I know what this stuff is. Well, I'll I'll say this with the I hope they don't that you got to embrace the goofy side cuz it's it's like mm-hmm. Marvel comics of just like, well, if you try and take things too seriously, then people are just going to call it a joke and just move on to another day. They need to embrace the tone of One Piece. And if they can get the tone right and the characters right, then I think things like the CG can be forgiven in the long run if they get the core correct. So that's probably going to be an episode in the future. And uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see. Um Maybe we could get uh, someone like Austin who has not read the manga or the anime and see what uh, a complete stranger's interpretation of One Piece through the live action series would be. I think that would be interesting. Yeah, it's fine. That's the Austin review. It's fine. It's good. Yeah, no, we'll have to. I, I completely agree. I, I, now that I'm now that I'm invested in in this uh, universe, I'm 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 going to be watching the Netflix show when it comes out, if it comes out at this point. Is it? Wasn't um? Oh, geez, what's her name? Why am I blanking on her name? Um, I can I, I can help you. Give me give me something. Halloween lady, Michael Myers lady. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah. Uh, she's a noted One Piece fan, and she wanted to be or is going to be um, in the series, right? No, no. She has stated her her son is was is in is an anime fan, and uh, connecting with her son, she started watching stuff like One Piece, and she stated like her favorite character from the series, which I'm not going to say because you haven't met her, you haven't met this character yet. Uh, <laughs> But uh, but she's she's expressed that she knows about One Piece and knows what it is, and um, but I don't I've I haven't heard any casting news, uh, for of her involvement. But uh, based on the casting, it seems to be a lot of like up and coming people. Like they there's no like big name celebrity involved in this, and that's probably just a cost uh, choice. Uh, and we'll. I'm last thing on the live action series is I don't know how they're going to adapt it because even though one piece is still going, it's so long and exactly. And the fights can be super long. And I I really don't know what they're going to do because they're going to have to condense things for time. And I'm curious how they're going to go about it and how long Netflix will be willing to pay for this thing until they are like, this is too expensive. We're going to cut our losses. Goodbye. Exactly. With uh, Bebop, they kind of condensed the main vicious arc into that one season that came out, but it obviously wasn't over because, you know, Ed just shows up at the end. So they changed the narrative for, for Bebop. Are they going to do that here? Are we going to, is the first season, is it just going to be just Captain Morgan? Surely not. If they're going to have, 
uh, if they if all the straw hats are here, surely we're gonna see their introductions in the first season, right? Like, I surely. I imagine so. I imagine they're gonna. They're definitely gonna do the the Barity Sanji arc because they built the ship mm. for that. Uh, the question is, are they gonna do Arlong? I think th- I feel like if you're gonna do an a One Piece season, Arlong is the best place to stop. Mm. Where after Arlong, it's like that's your se- that's your finale. Is not me joining the crew, and we'll see you. We'll see you next time. But who knows? We don't know what they're covering. Because uh, Netflix series are usually like usually 13 episodes long. And about like 45 minutes to an hour. So who knows? They're going to have to cut stuff and condense things in order to meet their seasonal runtime. So we'll see. Exactly, and we can we can speculate all day, just like we speculated with Cowboy Bebop. We can't really, we won't really know until it actually comes out. And like like most things, I'm gonna keep my expectations low, so I'm not disappointed. Uh, also, just because uh, you know Bebop was Bebop, and that <laughs> was not great TV. I'm just gonna put it out there. Uh, maybe it's as good as it could have been. Uh, it's still not great. So it's probably won't also be great. But let's just accept it for what it is. And cross that. Let's cross that sea when we come to it. How about that? Well said. whom do you fight i fight your monologue (laughs) how very glib and do you believe in eorzea eorzea's unity is forged to falsehoods its city-states are built on deceit and its faith is an instrument of deception it is not but a cobweb of lies (laughs) to believe in eorzea is to believe in nothing all right, uh, I'm gonna. I'll spare you the rest of it. Uh, but <laughs> no, you know what? I I I understand you had really fun on the Reddit, and uh, I'm glad I'm glad you had fun there on the message boards. But uh, yeah, his uh, that was that was some monologue. <laughs> All right, so much in the same way that I finished my first segment, East Blue, you finished. The 2.0, the based, the, the retail release, I should say, of A Realm Reborn. 
So, yes. uh, how was last we checked in? I believe you had just finished Brave Fox Longstop, uh, you finished Titan. Uh, so from then on, going into the lead up for from Ishgard and Garuda, and meeting Sid, and onward, what what was your experience like? I feel like the story in two point is good. It's not great. Um, mm. I enjoyed it for what it was, but there were points where I was just kind of like, okay, like Sid having amnesia plot. I groaned at the TV because if you, listeners of uh, Third Impact Anime know, I really dislike Amnesia Plot because I feel it is a trope well-worn by writers and people use it way too often in their narratives when they don't want to come up with the plot solutions, so we'll have the amnesia to keep the story going. So I wasn't a big fan of that. I wish the villains... The, the I know they're not called this, but they're basically like the Psycho Rangers from, from Power Rangers in Space. They look like Psycho <laughs> Rangers. Had more... I wish the villains had more weight to them. They they felt oh, yeah. like... Completely agree. They felt like they're twirling their mustaches going, ha 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 ha, we will rule the world with our ultimate, with our ultimate weapon machine, ma ha 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 ha. Uh... And that's it. <laughs> and just like, we we believe in Gaius von Bolsar. He is our ultimate leader. I pledge my life to him. It was, it was almost uh, um, like an anime villain where the, the, the sub-bosses are like, we, we, we love our commander. We'll do anything for him. And what else about our character? Uh, nothing. So I think the gameplay I really enjoyed. And... There were story moments I loved, like getting able to ride the the Enterprise for the first time and going up into the sky was like, oh, it's really cool. Playing kind of the classic rendition of the Final Fantasy theme, I I really enjoyed that a lot. Um, but I, I'm sorry, I feel like I'm rambling. But overall, I I enjoyed the game. I didn't love the game. In terms yeah. of story. Yeah, no, I, I, that's pretty much what I expected. Uh, as I said before, that this is just kind of a lead up to, uh, rather I should say, they're having to redo everything that didn't work in the first game. They're having, you know, in a post-Calamity situation, we have, they needed to quickly pound out a story, pound out a game, and about half the time that they really needed to begin with and start fresh with um a realm reborn and so it just is kind of there it's a save the world plot from the evil empire and i completely agree that the the power ranger uh garleans with their big armor they really weren't used all that well like we see them show up we see nero the red ranger we see livia <laughs> the the white ranger and like they show up in some cutscenes with gaius but at the end we just we quickly fight and beat them uh in cape Westwind, yeah. where you fight the one guy uh, Ritatan's uh, Sarvina, a character that again had so little weight that I had to look him up just now uh, <laughs> on Wiki to remember his name. You know, he's got the big like the big fist, uh, and you know they completely retooled his fight to be a solo fight this time. Completely forgot who he was just because it, it he's just so just there. 
and Livia's cool because she's got the white armor. She's got the white Magitek uh, armor. That was pretty cool. But mm-hmm. again, she just is uh, eh, whatever. You and know, uh, even Nero, like Nero, like has the big monologue in the middle of Praetorium that takes like five minutes while you have to sit there, and that's kind of cool. He has a big hammer, which is really, which is fun. But eh, he just is there. He complains about uh, Sid being the Emperor's favorite. They, they, he's a he's a whiny child of just like why didn't anyone pay attention to me? Exactly. Just, he's for the, for these being these cool characters and these really awesome these uh, this armor that is just kind of there. Like they don't really do much in the story at that point. Now I'll say we do see more of Nero later. Just you know, little spoiler toward stuff coming up. So like Nero's not done, and I don't know about the others necessarily. But from where you're at now. For these characters that are supposed to be the like the lieutenants, they do just kind of end anticlimactically. Uh, I'll give you that for uh, sure. A, a good like comparison I could think of off the top of my head, and I don't mean to annoy people, but it's like Captain Phasma in the Star in the newer Star Wars movies, <laughs> where man were... that that looks that looks like a really cool character. Are they gonna do anything? Nope. But they look cool, don't they? Doesn't doesn't that character look cool? Buy the figure, buy the figure, guys. That's exactly what it is. I, I completely <laughs> agree. Like she could have been really interesting, but nope, she just had a really sudden death, and that was it. They had to cut so much stuff. Ah, yeah, I completely agree. Uh, okay, well, yeah, no, I can. I like. I, I that was pretty much my part. My my expectation. Um, now that we're out of the boring save the world, you know, a new hope parts of the story, now we get to explore the more political machinations going on around. So I'm really interested to hear what you have to say um, eventually when we get to the end of the two point patches before Heaven's Word, because that's where that's where things get interesting. And I'm, I'm interested to hear what you have to say about that I'm, when we get I, to it. The, I am. The only kind of story thing I'm interested in is I know they go by a different name, but I just call them Organization Thirteen because <laughs> they wear the same black robes like Organization Thirteen does in Kingdom Hearts, and they're all they're also super mysterious. Yeah. Um, I'm curious what their angle is because everything every time someone from from that organization talks, they always talk in riddles and. In obf- mm-hmm. obfus- obfuscation, so we don't really understand what they're talking about, and so that's yeah, for sure. That's that's that's, uh, that's interesting. We fought basically. I found it funny that uh, Gaius, who's portrayed as like the big ultimate bad that you have to fight at the end of 2.0, he kind of gets supplanted by um, the first Organization 13 member you have to fight, who gets who uh, possesses. One of the members of the of the waking of the seventh dawn uh, mm. members, and basically that's like your that's your big final boss fight. And uh, I, I found it funny that Gaius got kind of got supplanted, and he even him at the end is just like, "But that's not what I wanted to do." Well, hi, we fooled you. You were stupid. <laughs> you you were you were too you were too focused on being popular on the Reddit and the message boards. And didn't, didn't didn't see the full picture, so I found it funny that he got supplanted. Although his he did get one cool moment where his ultimate machine weapon, which is basically a giant mech, consumes the primals, <laughs> like they're 
like their candy, which was a really cool scene where I'm just going like, oh crap, how are they consuming the primals? Because they're like supposed to be like this big recurring fight that the people of Aorzi have to deal with, Seventh Dawn has to deal with, and he just consumes them like, I ate a sandwich for lunch like that. So he got, that was his, that was his like one cool moment in the story. Right, right. And that's, that's where we see the, the Allegum technology really come up. So we have like the, the modern day forces, the Garlean Empire, he's sort of taking over, trying to take over. We have the, the Organization 13 or the, the Asians, and they are some sort of um, ancient psychic mages, maybe. Uh, they they worship the the dark god the antithesis to Hydalin. that I don't know how much they've talked about yet and I don't I haven't since I haven't finished it I don't want to try to spoil anything they the only thing we know is they seem to be otherworldly and that they are able to continue to live by possessing other beings as we saw in in the mm. uh, guy with the kind of whitish hair talk about that Thancred 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 yeah where he pos- uh, also, listeners, be aware. I will. I just give everything nicknames, so <laughs> I I will try and get better with names. But that's that's a habit I've fallen into. Is just giving things nicknames. So I apologize. Thankard is the that. he's the himbo. Uh, of <laughs> the signs of seventh dawn. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, just that they're able. Basically, they're able to live forever because they are able to possess a body mm-hmm. of their choosing. If they're able to kind of seduce them. Um, and continue to live on. Like um, I'm now in post-game stuff, and we met a member of the Asians who's an all-white, and because he's an all-white, you're like, oh, crap, who is he? And he basically tells you, like, yeah, the, the Asian you fought, like, he, he never, they never truly go away. They, they, uh, they might uh, be off to the side for a bit, but, but they can come back. Like it's it's kind of like a never ending fight, just like the primals are, where you're yeah. you're dealing you're dealing with them all the time. There's no way of truly defeating them. Yeah, their their essence exists in in the live stream, like the primals do. So it's more of a matter of people summoning them and them coming back that way. Mm. And that, that actually comes into play um, in the patches. So you'll get some resolution for how that works uh, shortly, actually. But uh, so much of this is is uh, seeing these forces and how they interact with the other um, historical forces. So we have the Allegans, this sort of ancient empire of uh, Magitech Nazis that are terrible, horrible people. And there's ruins everywhere uh, of all the stuff they made, like the Ultima weapon. That's an, Al- an Allegan weapon. And it's able just to, to gobble up the primals like nothing. And uh, that's, that's sort of what they try to use at the end both uh, Gaius to control things and La Habrea to end things and cause the end of the world because of this crazy uh, Magitech Nazi weapon. And you'll see the Allegans show up a lot in the story mm. and some of the crazy, crazy ruins and the crazy monsters and stuff they created that still linger, uh, linger today. I do like that as I kind of progressed through the story, we explored more... Uh, more of the world, like I, I finally got to meet the, what do you, what'd you call them? The, the religious elves of. Uh, oh yeah, the, the the Ishgard, Ishgard. Yeah, I finally met the Ishgard, which I know they play a bigger role in, in Heavensward, 
Uh, but yeah, man, I'm interested I, to hear what you have to say about Ishgar. That's 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 what that's an interesting aspect to the game. Playing that section in 2.0, they're very. It seems like they're very guarded people. Like they mm. they don't let outsiders into their own inner workings. As you kind of see through the quest, of just you have to jump through so many hoops just for them to say, "Okay, we will work with you." And in another kind of uh, the, in another kind of media comparison for me is they're kind of like the Romulans in Star Trek, where they're a big <laughs> empire, but they're always neutral and just don't want to get involved. Because when Gaius comes to makes his declaration to the uh, to the three uh, nations. They're the in their meeting. Uh, they're basically told that they're going to sit out and be not be involved whatsoever and not help with fighting Gaius and the uh, Galleons when the fighting starts. So I'll be interested as I start Heavensward to see how they are as a, a nation and as a culture within the game. Yeah, I really liked how they uh, integrate the Orthodox religion with this, uh, with this group. We we introduced to them by the uh, what do you call it the, the Inquisition, where their people, some of the nobles that you're working with, are uh, accused of being heretics. And in this case, mm-hmm. the heretics are uh, working with dragons. The Ishgardian elves, uh, the Elizan, do not like dragons. They're completely opposed to dragon kind. So we see a lot of these heretics show up and will continue to show up in the story. And I thought it was really interesting uh, how they interact with, uh, with, the, with the Ishgard. Yeah, our first uh, dragon fight actually happens kind of as the big finale when it comes to the Ishgard story of uh, 2.0, right. which uh, right. was, it, was interesting. And there's also, if you're big into like political intrigue, like it seems like this... This uh, culture is big into that because everything is hush hush and it has double dealings and trying to make people think the other way about certain what certain things. So I'm interested to see how that plays out in a bigger scale in the next expansion. Oh, absolutely! Another really cool thing about Carithas, the, the area they're in, is that back in the 1.0 version of the game, the entire place was green and full of grass. There was no snow at all in the original game. Huh. And supposedly, I think the story is that with the calamity, it changed the ether so much in the area that it was covered in, in, in ice and snow. And you'll, you'll, you'll see more of that, you know, even in, in Heaven's Word, where you see complete ice-covered areas and parts that are covered in snow, you know, old ruins and whatnot. And I thought it was really neat to see how they completely changed it and used a lore reason to, 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 work, to work around that. That's really funny because I can't picture them in a kind of a grassy area because the snow, <laughs> the the snow plus the the music that plays in that area, which is really good, kind of has a very somber, very serious tone to it, and it's very, it feels kind of isolating, and that you are a person on your own and trying to navigate these treacherous waters, which fits better with like a snowy atmosphere than green, <laughs> green grass. Exactly. So. It is. It's so weird to think think that. But uh, we'll have to show you some video of the old, the old release because it is. It's kind of mind blowing to see how much it's changed. Hmm. 
Another thing I guess I want to point out is the, the Praetorium, the big final dungeon. I think that was it's cool that you were able to see that with the new version because it used to be uh, like a 45-minute slog as you go from the beginning of the fight all the way through the La Habrea fight. And there's like the, the final bosses are just one after another. You fight Nero, and then you fight the ultimate weapon the first time, and then you fight the ultimate weapon the second time, and then you fight the La Brea, and it's just fight after fight after fight. But they've broken it up now, where it used to be an eight-person dungeon. And, of course, because of the eight people, people just found a way to breeze through it really quickly, as fast as you could. But now it's a four-person dungeon. And because of that, and because it slowed down, they have made it where the fights are actually interesting. They're fun. <laughs> it used to be that the final ultimate weapon fight, it would happen so fast, you wouldn't see any of the mechanics happen. It was boring. And for you know a final dungeon, the final end of that game is kind of anticlimactic, even more anticlimactic than you than you mentioned, you know, with the story. But I'm really glad that they they changed it because to see the the final ultimate weapon fight, and to see him try to use the primal powers, but to see Heidelin literally pull the primals out of the ultimate weapon in a big, um, you know, cinematic moment. I thought that was really, really interesting about that. Yeah, I thought the cinematics during the final fight was really cool. And also just kind of a big thing that the game teaches you when it comes to combat is uh, area of effect attacks, because that can mm -hmm. have a major impact on you and your health. And so in the big boss fight, like, there's a ton of area of effect attacks that you have to be, or AOEs, that you have to be aware of. And just it's a lot of, like, almost like a game of Twister where you're just like, oh, God, oh God I gotta go this way, I gotta go that way. <laughs> Okay, well, let's see. Let's move on here. You you mentioned you, you beat the game. You're in the patches now. Where do you where do you see the story going now? What is sort of the hints, the the breadcrumbs of the story? Well, the Asians are going to definitely play a larger role, and that they're hinting that you as the warrior of light, you're you. It, it feels kind of um, like a, a a darker chapter is what we're getting in the next expansion because. The post credit scene for the base game is you see the crystal that has basically like been like a beacon of hope and has been your kind of your guiding light decaying and just kind of beginning to fall apart and drift away from you. And so it makes you worried. It's like, oh no, what's causing this? Uh, that's, that's not good. Um, we also we've also seen political implications that the uh, seventh dawn, who is based in Uda, in Uda, um, have to uh, decide to move out because they want to main, maintain neutrality, and because of the events that have happened in the base game, they've gained more notoriety, and because of that, more lords and people of influence are coming to them saying hey i'm willing to fund your effort but you have to do this for me and so to avoid that they're getting away from external influences and trying to maintain their neutrality so as a kind of a political uh, note i found that interesting and also a little bittersweet because the waking sands has been, been kind of like your you go back and forth there all the time, so I know I know I know that building really well, and so to say goodbye to it, it's like, aw. 
Bill, really... pray return to the waking sands. <laughs> pray, pray return to the waking sands is kind of a meme because everyone has the same experience. And um, they, they, they kind of fixed it, but it used to be that there was no way to teleport there. Um, the game gives you a lot of teleport tickets now, but because the nearest teleport was uh, Horizon, anytime you had to go there for the story, you had to travel to Horizon and then walk to um, oh. Vesper Bay. I, I didn't that because the way it's worked for me is they just dump a bunch of Vesper Bay tickets in your inventory. Like they give you like 17, mm-hmm. 25 tickets to use. Yep. So <laughs> nope, used, used to not be like that because, uh, you know, the, the fact that there's no either right there is part of the story, of course. But that doesn't make it any less convenient when the story is telling you to go there every other quest. <laughs> there's kind of a line of like it makes sense in lore but this is also a game and so we have to uh not be so inconvenient but yeah i'm excited for heaven's word um because you and basil our friend basil has been hyping up like oh the story gets really good and so <laughs> i'm uh trying to it's it's this it's this push and pull where Tobias knows this and my friends know as I can get very focused. And so I'm trying to slow down and enjoy the game at a slower pace, but I'm also like really excited. I want to see what happens next, but uh, I am interested to see where the story goes and to see kind of the complexity at work with the story. Cause based on what I've seen so far is they can tell an interesting yarn, like um, in the post patch stuff, a big thing is there's harder versions of dungeons and it's not just oh we put more enemies there we we leveled the boss up and gave him more health there's a story reason of why things the things are the way they are and why you're going back to them they didn't just say oh here's a harder version and we're done uh, they actually gave you like a, a good story reason like one was uh, the, a party that you meet early in the game is kind of a cursed party where uh, most members either died or just kind of ended in disaster. And we learn that in one of the dungeons, one of the few remaining party members that you meet earlier in the game uh, is being invited to this wedding that you learn is really just very morbid and almost kind of like a, a, a shining in a way. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of tone but i really i really like that that story touch to the post game with the dungeons i think that's that's they didn't need to do that but they did yeah it's not just you know here's the harder version of the game uh, the trials and they kind of do that a little later with the menstrual the menstrual fights you know that's it's just what it is but yeah time tower decroft is completely reconfigured and the the maps like the the graphics and all there are there but they changed it a little bit and they changed the maps up to also account for changes in the story as well so they're unique uh dungeons completely you uh, mentioned going to still visual you know earlier in the story where you just cleared out with the dragons that have taken over but then as you go back it becomes a bit of a training ground as some of the ishgardian forces cleared out and completely different completely different enemies completely different layouts it's 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 interesting how they have reused a lot of that stuff to make new content
one highlight for me for the post-game stuff has, has something Tobias wanted me to do was the Hildebrand cases. Yes. <laughs> okay. I don't. I don't understand. I don't get the hate. Because these are awesome. <laughs> like, he'll, you meet this guy. His name's Hildebrand. He's basically like a... He's a detective, but he's very goofy and can be very dense. But it's very comedic in tone in terms of the stories and also just the facial expressions they do. Like, if you grew up playing, like, Gary's Mod... You'll you'll, you'll 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 enjoy the the facial expressions, and I like just kind of the goofy nature of it, and I like kind of the episodic nature of it. Like they give him his own like pre anime preview with his own like title sequence. It's amazing. <laughs> uh, the the way I've described him to people is. If you if you watch like the Naked Gun movies, or any or Airplane, he's he's Leslie Nielsen of the Final Fantasy fourteen, where he is very dense and kind of doesn't understand everything that's going around him, but he somehow stumbles his way into <laughs> into uh, his cases. I've laughed, I've had fun, and. I think people should enjoy the goofy side of things and not take things so seriously. <laughs> to be fair, I think the majority of people also appreciate the Hildebrand quest. It seems to be a very, very much minority that does okay. not like. Uh, to be fair, uh, it does it does contrast with some of the more serious. Again, we're going to talk about people in in Power Rangers armors and gods being uh, slain and things like that. There could be more serious. Um, I say it doesn't sound serious, but sort of the more we're going to be very dramatic in our fantasy series. But yeah, Hildebrand's just a big goofball. And I really like how he and his assistant Nashu play off each other. Like she's a, she's just as stupid as he is, but she believes in him and his, uh, his powers of insight. And they both are two idiots together. <laughs> the way they uh, play against the other people. Uh, I think later we get uh, Inspector Briardine, who's like an actual detective he just yeah, is he, shocked he's, <laughs> where he's basically his the hildebrand's rival because there's one case there's one case where they have to find like a sword and even he gets uh fooled at, t- at a point and gets the the, the card thrown into his head <laughs> which <laughs> i thought was great i have a minor spoiler thing about hildebrand does he come back in like the other expansions or is yes, this like his? Yay! I'm so happy. I, I think I think he. The only time we don't get, you know, I think he's. I don't. I think he's not in Shadowbringers. I don't know yet, but I, somebody mm-hmm. was telling me that he goes away for a bit. But luckily, in Endwalker, he is going to be tied to the some of the relic armor. So now, <laughs> if you want to get the, the the big armor sets from Endwalker that they're about to come out with, you have to do the Hildebrand stuff. You have to catch up with Hildebrand, which I think that is hilarious. Is great. I, you know, he, he in kind of relating it to One Piece, he is for me. They're not the same, but they have the same kind of tone. Is like he's he's like mm-hmm. Buggy, where Bu- Buggy is also can be very goofy and very silly, and he's a recurring character, just like Hildebrand will be. So 
I'm excited to take on more of his cases. And I just love, I love the, the kind of the noirish music that plays in the background and, and uh, the absurdity. Like, we're dealing, I think in the case I have to do as of this recording is he's dealing kind of on the coast, dealing with this uh, wealthy, blue-haired lady. Uh, so we'll, we'll see how that goes. I'm, I'm, I need, I don't remember the case name, but I'm, I'm excited to see where his adventures go. Yeah. All of the, all the cases were to tie together in one big, uh, story arc in, in that. And I do feel like he gets, he's gotten the most story and ARR, uh, cause he does show up in heaven's word and later in Stormblood, but this feels like the the most the, the longest arc is an ARR because there's a lot there's a whole story a whole chapter that shows up in every patch and I want to say there's like five or six patches major story patches and uh, the two point X releases so you get a lot of hilled around in this one and you know he's mm. they they definitely show up later but it feels like the longest one is in ARR mm. and like the, there's actually the the dungeons they add too because like last night we just did the battle battle on the big bridge which is the first one. Refight Greg. I mean Gilgamesh. <laughs> and, uh, his uh, chicken Enkidu. His green chicken. <laughs> Gilgamesh is interesting. You, you I mean you don't know this, but like Gilgamesh is a recurring character in Final Fantasy. Uh, he first showed up in Five as a just a a mercenary for hire, but he shows up in a lot of other games as like a dimension hopping character. Hmm. It's it's supposed to be the same Gilgamesh in every game. Unlike the SIDs, you know, each each SID in every game is a, is a different SID. It just shows a similar name. Gilgamesh is supposedly the same Gilgamesh in each of these games. And he looks the same. He's got the same very traditionally Japanese sort of no face paint and the get up. He's always a bit of a coward and that he talks big, but when push comes to shove, he has no qualms of running away. And he usually has a lot of extra weapons and arms or something like which that. Which is which is huge because he's like in terms of size, he's like almost as big as like a sumo wrestler. <laughs> so for him to be exactly. for him to be like so big and for him to be like a, uh, to run away, I found pretty funny. Like even in the, the, the fight we had last night, like eventually he's like uh, run away, ha, I'm back. <laughs> yeah, that's very much what he's he's known for. He's being, being goofy in that way. So it was cool to see they integrate him in with the goofy character art with Hildebrand. He plays off uh, Hildy and those characters really well. Mm-hmm. I'm really glad you're enjoying it. I knew you would. I could tell me when I was playing this back in the day that, oh man, I wish I wish Bill was playing this game because he would love the Hildebrand Manderville quest. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see where, where his cases take him, a great detective. <laughs> Uh, so you mentioned that trial, Battle on the Big Bridge. What other dungeons and trials did you, uh, I guess, talking about the game as a whole, like what were some of your favorite dungeon moments? Um, I really, I loved, well, I'm not saying I loved, but I enjoyed the King Moogle fight. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not expect that. Because um, <laughs> so, so, surprisingly, like in the game, Moogles, which is a race in Final Fantasy, that even I knew about, has been kind of in the background. Like, they haven't really played a role at all in 2.0. Like, I haven't been able to get them as, like, a companion. They haven't really played anything in the story until 
recently in the post game. So I it was it was a nice surprise, just like this big King Mughal fight and just all the, all the colors of all the fighting. <laughs> it was like whoa, that's a lot to take in because. I'm just, it's an eight-man dungeon, which is like the first real eight-man I have, I did, and so it's a it's a you can kind of feel overwhelmed at times of just like oh, wait what do I do here um just and all the distractions they have with the area of, area of effects and uh, just all of the different particle effects and how brightly can be colored everything is. Yeah, I mean with that one you have yeah. Uh... Uh, the good king of Magamag himself, but then you've got the all the Mughals guard that show up. And it used to be where when when he shows up at the halfway point, they all show up too, and you have to attack and, and burn them down as individual people. They've changed it recently where they just show up as individual attacks, but they don't you have to like worry about them all that much. It used to be even more chaotic uh, than it is now. And on top of that, you have to like groove to the song, the Good King Magamang. The song is it's like a Danny Elfman, uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, like really fun sing along. I got to show you now. There's a there's a funny video back from one of the earlier um, Fan Fest events where the the head localizer Michael Christopher Koji Fox he's singing the song and they give him like a hat to wear and he's jumping around on stage and singing the song with the lyrics. Because uh, funny enough, the the lyrics actually teach you how to fight the fight. They teach you what the different moves do. And, you know, it used to be when you, uh, I think even now, the extreme version, where you have to fight all the individual ones again. But it it tells you what their classes are and shows you, tells you what order to fight them in, uh, even. Hmm. So if you know the lyrics, (laughs) it actually helps you play the game. (laughs) That's funny. I love that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I also like with all the dungeons, like, Every dungeon was different. It didn't feel samey, which was yeah. good. Like there's some that take place like in a deep jungle. I really like the heart, the uh, the manor dungeon. That was really fun. Yeah, um, yeah. And recently, I I finally for a while I've been doing dungeons with you and Basil and a couple of our other friends, and I finally did some of the harder dungeons with the um, the randomizer thing in ff14 yeah, uh, the duty finder the duty finder yeah and the roulettes um so far it's been about 50 50 where the first mm-hmm. one we we did um the harder version of the uh, the veil and uh, that went really well because someone had run this before and said like no we have to use the cannons to fight on the monster and then Another one I did, which was Basil's favorite, which I found funny, is you have to basically fight this giant kraken, and you have to go around these different small islands and get, like, ten of his tentacles off. And I died three times, and the group would split off and do their own thing, and there wasn't really any cohesion to our to our party, so... It, it kind of soured me on what was Basil's favorite, unfortunately. That, that, that's one that, uh, that there's a lot going on in that fight because you've got the tentacles that you have to go over to attack, but there's also tornadoes that are spawning on certain islands that you have to avoid. Uh, there's attacks that, you know, they're hitting on certain islands. So there's a lot of jumping around you have to do from island to island. And you have to, like you said, work together as a, a party. And if you're not doing that, 
it becomes even more chaotic and is very challenging. But um, I've enjoyed every dungeon, and I like the story reasons behind them. I think I said this on our episode zero, where when I did when I tried WoW, uh, I just dove into dungeons, and because I didn't have any context for them, I didn't really care. But with the way we've I've approached FF14, this context of why you're going into here, what is this about? Mm-hmm. And that's made me care more about the dungeons and not just treat them as, like, grind fests for experience or loot. Which I know that's, that's for some people, that's their jam. But for me, I'm more interested in, in narrative reasoning. Talk about the, the duty relapse. Like, the reason you want to do those is to get experience. So at a point later, when you're trying to level up another another class, another job that, uh, you know, from, from, from level one... You kind of want to go back and try that because it makes it go five faster. The duty roulettes will give you a random duty, but you get bonus experience and bonus gill out of doing it. And it they're kind of meant to help people like you. Like what is happening when you do these random dungeons that you want to, you want to mark off Holebreaker Isle. You want to mark off Steel Vigil. You need to do that for your story. But of course, if all you're doing is looking for other people just doing those dungeons, you have to hope that you're playing with people who are at the same point as you, which doesn't always work. So what they do is they encourage the veterans to get into the roulettes to queue up with people like you for the promise of bonus bonus stuff. So that's what's happening is that uh, other veterans are queuing up for a duty roulette, like the leveling roulette. What that does is that there's a list of the dungeons that it will make you mark you down for and it will match you with other people who are trying to do that at the same time. And that's kind of how they, uh, how it works on the back end. And that ideally you would have veterans that have seen things, these mechanics before that, like you said, in uh, still visual stone visual hard where you have the cannons, people who've already done it will hopefully teach the new players uh, how, Which... how, how, how the mechanics work. Which there was. There was somebody in the text chat that said, "We, you can't do it like this. We need to use the cannons. And everyone read that and said, okay, let's do that. <laughs> and exactly. thanks to And thanks to that person's guidance, we were able to beat the fight and um, go about it. I'll also say this. When you die in a dungeon, I like that they don't make you tread all the way through it again. Like, Mm-hmm. They they will usually give you like a shortcut that you can use to get back, or if you have to do it a bit of walking, like there's no creatures that you have to fight again. So they don't make it more busy work that you have to do if you die in a particular spot, which I think is uh, very nice. Yeah, there's there's very little pen that penalty, like almost no penalty for wiping and dying in uh in the game. Like it's just kind of a part of it. And we get to a point now where all these dungeons, they've been around for several years. People know how to do them. That's not really a surprise anymore. But back when they were new, and even the new stuff coming out with Endwalker, like there are people that have to figure this stuff out. Like There's not a game guide to read that shows you how to use the cannons. People at one point had to figure it out and learn how to do it back then. So it's kind of cool to see how these strategies and this um, common knowledge has grown over the years and has been cemented as best practices in these games. And, you know, even now, everyone is aware that newbies are there, that especially in this early part, 
everyone is still pretty fresh and pretty new to learning how their classes work. Though most people aren't that mean about it. You know, they, they accept that you're not going to be playing at the very best. You're not going to be hardcore game, hardcore gamer hours. You know, it's going to be people sort of feeling out how these things work. Yeah, I do. I, I got a accommodation for the Arden Vale when I ran that uh, for the second time, which is really cool to get. And uh, just kind of that recommend that showing of just like, oh, yeah, you actually know what you're doing was pretty cool. Uh, when I well, got that was the... to make sure that was that was a uh, stone vigil, not arm veil, because arm veil is the one with the fruits, which you swore oh, to never go into. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, that is a whole. That, oh, oh. I'm having flashbacks right now, just thinking about the it. We, oh. The less we talk about arm veil and the marble fruits, uh, the better. That will that will traumatize. Oh. We're gonna have Bill is gonna be in the middle of the street, stabbing his shoulder crying about our long if he has to think about <laughs> our veil again <laughs> yes listeners that is my least favorite dungeon i would uh like to uh since we're probably getting near the end i would like to say kind of my thoughts on 2.0 if that's cool with you tobias yeah, I'll say while we're kind of talking about Arm Veil, you know, listeners write in. They're going to send us an email about your Arm Veil experiences. We need to let Bill know that he's not alone uh, and having a terrible time in Arm Veil. Uh, so if you have any particularly bad stories about running it, go ahead and send us an email at uh, grandlinereborn at gmail.com. We would love to hear uh, and possibly read those on the, the podcast. But uh, with that, so what is what is your overarching thought uh, about finishing the 2.0 release? I enjoyed it, and it's probably the first MMO that I actually enjoyed playing. I play on PS4, and it, I didn't feel lost with the controls. Like I said on the first episode, mm-hmm. it really ease you into it. My only real big complaint with the game is I really don't like how they map things out on the map because of spacing. Like mm-hmm. some sometimes things are like at a higher level, some things are lower, and the game sometimes gives you an indication of that, and sometimes they don't. And I sometimes I wish they had it like Skyrim or Fable Two, where they just had a follow the the bouncing ball, follow the pixie dust, whatever to go to there. At points, I know you don't want to do that for everything, but just to make things a bit more streamlined when it comes to spacing awareness, because I'll, I have difficulty of that. of just like, well, do I have to go up, down? Do I have to go to a different section? And sometimes the map is not really good at indicating where exactly you need to go. Right. Well, I do want to ask, because we brought this up uh, on the, the last episode. Do you feel like you know the area and the layout of the land a lot more than you started um, off? There's certain areas, yeah, I would say that. Like, if someone said, like, take me around Uda, uh, the yeah. city, I would, I could be like, yeah, I know how to go around there and where to go. So if I was like, walk us to Vesper Bay, go to the Waking Sands, like, you you could, in your mind's eye, you can imagine where that is and the easiest way to get there. Yeah, I could tell, I could probably tell you which teleport to use and then we start walking. Exactly, um, yeah. The certain sections I'm still confused about, like Gridania mm. and Old Gridania. <laughs> I'm just like, I, 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 I don't know where to go here. 
I still have to check the map on Gridania too. So I don't think you're you're not alone there for sure. <laughs> oh, one other thing I'd like to mention story wise is in the beginning they ask you to join one of the great companies, right? The three great mm-hmm. companies. And I thought there'd be like more story side quest stuff with them involved. And there's really not. You join them, but that's it. It doesn't seem to be any sort of thing in the game from what I saw that gives you kind of more details about them besides their leaders that get a lot of screen time, but we don't really get to know other people in the great companies or kind of what are their goals or their ethos. They're just kind of there. Yeah. Joining the grand company. That's, it's really, it's a lot of optional content and a lot of times you'll be going there to cash in your seals. So every time you do a fate, you get a little bit of seals, your grand company seals. When you get a lot of extra gear from dungeons that is just trash, you can cash that in to get more grand company seals and you can spend those both to upgrade your rank and to buy things like specific armor. So you can, the outfits that they wear with the, either the red and Ulda, I'm sorry, no, the red and Limza, the yellow and Gridania, or the, I think the black and Ulda, um, you can buy those sets and you can wear the armor like that. Uh, You have to get your Chocobo from there. You get uh, Chocobo Barding you can get from there. So as far as like the choice of which one you do, it is very much a stylistic choice. It's This is kind of the equivalent of, we think about World of Warcraft, whether you choose Alliance or Horde. It is very much what team you play on when you do the PvP modes. If it matters, you know, it's some of the some of the specific... Uh, housing items you can get, like the um, the banners you can buy for your, your house uh, or match whatever grand company you're in. But, mm-hmm. yeah, it doesn't really matter in the story who you pick, uh, in, all, in all honesty. Well, maybe I should explore more of that side content because uh, I got very focused on the main quest story, so maybe that's something for me to do in the near future. It's, yeah, it's probably not bad. You can you can upgrade your rank. A lot of that is, I, I wonder how much of that you can do with the trial because some of that is your retainer. So like a retainer is the way that you interact with the market board, which as I say that, I recognize that you probably can't do that at all because they don't let you do market board stuff. Yeah, they don't let you do market board stuff on the free trial account. Yeah, but like your retainer is an NPC that you make and you can customize just like you make a new character that does your market board stuff, but you can also send them on missions to uh, to level up. And there's things like um, the crafting and gathering stuff. I think they can do mercenary work, but it's in my experience, it's mainly sending them on missions to mine for stuff uh, is what I've been using them for mainly. And you do that by paying them in venture, which is a, a currency that you buy from your grand company primarily. It's, it's things like that. It's a lot of nitpicky stuff that you could just ignore. I found that it's um, since you can buy uh, teleport tickets, either a tickets from them, uh, it's nice to turn in your gear. All the all the gear that you get from dungeons that you normally would just sell or throw away, you can at least turn them in for stuff. Hmm. You know, and like later, much later in the game, you unlock squadrons, which are NPCs that you can take in dungeons with you. And you can level them up and rank them up. I think you've already done something like that with the duty support system. 
but with the squadrons they're they're characters that you get to level up and use as characters in these dungeons which is a little more a little more complicated a little more involved than using the duty support that they added Mm -hmm. later yeah okay well if that is it if you have any other final thoughts we can go ahead and wrap things up i think um like i said i'm excited for heaven's sword when i get to it um i'll probably be slowing things down because the the uh, harder versions of the dungeons have been keeping me at bay so uh i'm excited to see where the story goes and i'm excited to hear your thoughts on uh alabasha and the very interesting characters you'll meet there yeah so like uh like you've kind of been going on a little bit ahead i've been reading on ahead and so far i really liked uh baroque works and the stuff they're setting up with the baroque works and alabasta uh they had seemed to have bucked a lot of the formula that i was seeing so far uh so i i enjoy seeing that if nothing else but we will talk a lot more on that in further episodes so i think our current plan for episode three is we're going to take a, a side quest as it were and we're going to watch some movies related to our projects. On my end, I'm going to sit down and watch the East Blue compilation film, which is, uh, I think, uh, Bill, how would you describe this? Basically, it's like a lot of uh, anime compilation movies where they take key moments from a franchise and put them all together in a more condensed format. Uh, An example in more recent times would be like the first two Madoka Magica movies or the first Ava Rebuild movie or uh, Galaxy Express 3.9. That is basically basically a compilation movie of the Galaxy Express 3.9 TV series. I knew this came out in 2017, many, many years after the original anime ran. Do you think it's the same same team? Is it it Toei that that animates this? Yeah, it's... Uh, Toei is up and down, um, but yeah, Toei has been the the animation studio that's been doing One Piece since the very beginning, and they basically have a core team that has been doing One Piece weekly, and they'll have usually like a series director that's been there forever, uh, that stays on for a number of years and kind of leads the team. For example, the director of I think uh, One Piece Strong World, which was one of the later One Piece movies, then went on to direct the TV series for as the series chief animation director, or the chief series director, apologies, for a number of years. So, yeah, it's, it's basically the core Toei animation One Piece team. Okay. It'd be interesting to see a more modern take on something that was not originally animated you know, 15 years ago or so. But on the other end, as I watch that, uh, I'm going to have Bill watch the Noclip documentary on A Realm Reborn. Uh, Noclip is a, a YouTube channel that does documentaries on a couple of different gaming subjects, but they did a three-part documentary on 14 where they went to Japan and spoke with a lot of the developers and the staffers at the time. Uh, they they talk about both the the fall of 1.0 and the the rise of a realm reborn. I think that is very interesting. It's something that anyone who's really interested in this game and to see its story really needs to watch because the way they they see the developers themselves are very candid about the mistakes that the company made at the time. It was kind of eye opening and an interesting story in and of itself. 
And uh, if you haven't heard of Noclip, Noclip does really great work. I think they've done documentaries on Hades, like you said, with Final Fantasy XIV and other, other popular games. So if you're interested in kind of the behind-the-scenes stuff and are interested in documentaries, I highly recommend Noclip, and I'm excited to see this uh, Final Fantasy XIV one. Exactly, and I'm, I'm excited to talk about both of these films uh, next time on our podcast. So... Again, uh, we very much appreciate uh, you listeners to write in and give us some feedback in whatever form that would be. Uh, email is agramlinereborn at gmail.com. Uh, likewise, we are both on Twitter. And while we do not have a unified Twitter account, I guess the best way uh, for that would be the Third Impact Anime Twitter, which is just T-I underscore anime. Uh, Bill, where can people find you on Twitter? You can find me uh, at Twitter at w, WB Foreman, F-O-R-E-M-A-N, with three nines, nine, 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 where I'm talking about One Piece, I'm talking about Hearthstone, I'm talking about, probably going to be talking more about Final Fantasy fourteen in the future, uh, <laughs> uh, with how I've become very enthralled with it. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll probably go crazy when I eventually get into the art books uh, posting stuff from there so yeah and I am also on Twitter at reverend underscore Tobias until next time till sea swallows all set sail for one piece yahoo <laughs>